Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When in my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. One of the things that never ceases to amaze me about toddlers is that they're just too happy to tell you exactly what they're thinking, often without regard for the social awkwardness that may ensue. They'll tell you about the world they see with no holds barred. No doubt you've got your own anecdotes, but here's mine. Two years ago, uh, we took our young kids on a holiday to New Zealand. And one highlight was taking them on a hike to see this, the Franz Joseph Glacier. The walk was long, but amazing. The track had a beautiful turquoise stream running gently beside it. Surrounding us were these immense snow-capped mountains. And in the distance, we could see our destination, a giant river of ice, that was just suspended in the valley. The sun was out, the sky was blue, it was the four of us enjoying God's creation. But then, 
walking towards us came a man. And you could tell that all this fresh air and sunshine, it had, it had made him a little hot and sweaty because he'd had to take off his shirt. And as he came towards us on this quiet path, Tracy and I, well, we both prepared to give him a nod and say a passing hello, as you do. When out from behind us came one of our toddlers, our three-year-old, and he pointed directly at the man and he said, naked, naked, naked. <laughs> and, and we didn't know what to do. And he surely didn't know what to do. So we all just sheepishly grinned at each other as we, as we passed. And, and just like toddlers tell it like they see it, so does Asa, the writer of Psalm 73. But before we get started, why don't we, um, why don't we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible. Please help us to understand this psalm and change our lives as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you can follow along uh, with me in your Bibles, that would probably be helpful. Um, psalm 73 opens with a bold claim in verse 1. Maybe you can have a look with me. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And we'd agree with that, wouldn't we? Because surely God is good to his people, to those who trust him, to those that want to live a godly life. I mean, that's our experience, isn't it? Once we became Christians, life always became easier. Well, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought that. And this is where Asaph tells it like he sees it because he goes on to say in verses 2 and 3, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, when Asaph looked at the world, he couldn't see the opening line of the psalm in action. Instead, he saw that those that didn't want anything to do with God, the arrogant and wicked, well, they were the ones that were prospering. And it wasn't just an observation for him, because it affected him personally. He was, he was envious of them. He wanted what they had. And there was so much he found appealing about them. Let's go on to verse 4. He writes, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. These people sound quite horrible, but I can start to see how Asaph became envious. Because it looks like these people, I mean, they're living the good life. For starters, they live 
however they want. They don't care about anyone except themselves. They're violent, proud, arrogant, morally corrupt, oppressive. They'll trample other people in order to get ahead. And it says their mouths lay claim to heaven, as if to say that they think heaven is theirs, that they know their own destiny. And God, well, he's barely even in the picture. Their only thought of him is when they scoff and say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And living this way seems to be working out pretty well for them. They've got no worries. They've got their health. And they don't just earn a living. They amass wealth. And if that wasn't enough, it says they're popular too. It says people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. People are lapping up what they say and do. And I don't think we have to look too hard to find people that match this description today, do we? Maybe a reality TV star, a movie star, rock star, pop star, or sports star. Maybe one of them comes to mind. Perhaps a politician. Perhaps a sitting president of a particularly large North American nation. Or closer to home, what about some of those banking execs who were pulled in front of the Royal Commission? I hear they're well paid for their um, maybe questionable ethics. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're all probably a little bit envious of something about their lifestyle, aren't we? I mean, wouldn't it be great to be just that little bit healthier? Maybe be a little bit wealthier? Or maybe just be a bit more popular? And if they're able to live such an enviable life by doing whatever they want without consideration of other people, let alone God, then you've got to ask, where is God in all of this? And why doesn't he do something about it? And if he's not going to do anything about it, then why should we try and live God's way if it doesn't seem to get us anywhere? Asaph put it more eloquently. Let's have a look at verse 13. He writes, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. You see, Asaph, he's, he's hit rock bottom. He's having a dummy spit and is about to throw in the towel. But just when it appears completely hopeless... Something happens. Let's have a look in verse 16. He says, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Did you catch that? He enters the sanctuary of God and it all changes. But what is this sanctuary of God and how do we find it? Well, in one sense, he might be talking about a physical sanctuary, like a temple or a church. But I think he's more talking about taking refuge in God or turning to God or having God as his sanctuary. Okay, so puppets with big noses. There are probably only a handful of puppets with big noses that are truly famous. There's um, 
obviously this guy, Pinocchio. And then uh, Punch from Punch and Judy. My favourite, Gonzo from The Muppets. But there's probably only one famous Australian one. Does anyone remember this guy? That's all right, Mr. Scribble. Don't be distracted by the lady with the 90s hair. We're looking at the puppet with the, the pencil for a nose. Because this is Australian TV gold. Mr. Squiggle was the much-loved star of one of Australia's longest-running kids' shows on the ABC. It went for over 40 years. And the premise of his show was that kids from across Australia would send in pieces of cardboard with a few squiggles on them. Here's an example. This one's from Dane, uh, from Lucendale in South Australia. Now, Mr. Squiggle, using his nose, would need to turn the squiggles into a complete picture. And that's no mean feat, uh, if you're a puppet. And um, here we go. And as Mr. Squiggle drew, kids, and including me at the time, would be glued to the TV trying to guess what he was going to create. So can anyone, anyone tell me what this is? Not, not really obvious. See, the, the, the guessing game was always made this little bit more tricky because Mr. Squiggle would often draw his pictures upside down. Does anyone remember Blackboard? Yep. And it wasn't until the drawing was complete and his assistant, the lady with the 90s hair, turned the picture the right way around that you could tell what was really going on. Well, this is obviously a mouse with a long tail. He's actually skipping with his tail, bouncing on a beach ball while playing with a yo-yo. Can you see it? Well, let me change the perspective and we'll see if that helps. Ah, there you go. See, see the mouse with a long tail skipping while bouncing on a beach ball and playing with a yo-yo? You see, it was turning things upside down, changing the perspective that made sense of Mr. Squiggle's drawings. And that's exactly what's happened here with Asaph. And because Asaph, well, Asaph changed his perspective to try and see things God's way, with an eternal view. And now it all starts to make sense. You see, the people that Asaph envied, those that lived however they wanted, without a thought for God, yet appeared to have everything, well, Asaph realises that God is completely in control of their destiny. And unfortunately, it's, it's not looking good for them. Pick it up from verse 18 with me. He writes... Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You see, Asaph realizes that the good life that those people appear to be living now, it's fleeting. At some point, They'll be cast down to ruin and swept away by terrors. Their prosperity, their lifestyle, their lives. Asaph realizes that God, he'll dismiss it all 
as easily as one dismisses a dream, as easily as they dismissed God. But more becomes clear for Asaph. His view of himself is also turned on its head. Do you remember, you know, a few minutes ago where we looked um, at verses 13 and 14, when he was complaining that surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence, all day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments? Well, now, look how he sees himself now in verse 21. He says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What a change. He realizes that when he looks at things through God's eyes, his complaints, well, they no longer make any sense. He says he was like an unthinking animal, senseless and ignorant. But is this sudden change all because of the satisfaction he gets from knowing that the ungodly will be swept away? Taking a bit of satisfaction in the downfall of others, a bit of schadenfreude? Well, I think there's a lot more to his change of heart. Look at verse 23 with me. Because he says, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you take me into glory. You see, through his struggle with what seemed to be such a grave injustice, something so incomprehensible that he nearly lost faith in God's goodness, he realizes that through it all, God was always with him. God was always leading him, always guiding him, always directing his path back to him. You know, I find this psalm so engaging and real because it captures the ups and downs that we all face when it comes to God. Like how we might feel when we have gone through our own struggles of faith, the inner turmoil, frustration and doubt we might have of God because maybe life isn't turning out how we'd, how we'd hoped. Like when we question God and, and ask him things like, God, if you're there and you love me, and you're in control, then why'd you let my life get so hard? Why am I constantly exhausted? Why'd you let me get sick? Why'd you let my financial security be destroyed? Why'd you take that person I love so much from me? Well, you know the questions because I'm, I'm sure you've all asked them. And it captures how we might feel when our faith is challenged, maybe because of a particular issue we're trying to figure out, Maybe when what the Bible says doesn't really fit with our life's experience or our view of what's right and wrong. Perhaps issues like the role of men and women or euthanasia or abortion or homosexuality or marriage. Unfortunately, this psalm, it it doesn't hold all the answers to those questions, but I think it is saying to us, don't give up on God. Because despite whatever we're feeling and our lack of faith, God is always faithful and he's always there, holding us by our right hand, guiding us with his counsel. So whatever it is that we're dealing with, we need to remember not to give up on God. As hard as it may seem, we need to be a bit more like Asaph. We need to try and look at things through God's eternal perspective. And back to Asaph, because there's so much more. You see, not only was God always with Asaph, 
guiding him through his crisis of faith. But in verse 24, he also mentions that God will ultimately bring him into glory. Let's read it again. He says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Well, glory, that's nice, but what is it? If you heard this at the time it was written, you might have thought it meant an earthly glory, like having others look up to you or, or holding you in, in high esteem at some point in your life. But because we sit on this side of the cross and we know what Jesus Christ has done for us, we can see it from another perspective. We can see that it's much more than something to do with this life. We know it's about being taken into God's eternal glory in heaven. It's talking about eternal life. John 3.16 and 17 says it pretty clearly. It's up on the screen, and I'll read it out. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see... God has given us an amazing gift. He sacrificed his one and only son for us to give us everlasting life and bring us into his eternal glory. So if God's given us this amazing eternal gift of glory, then it doesn't really make sense to be chasing after the fleeting trappings of this life the difference between these two things, you know, glory and eternal life versus comfort in this fleeting life, it's, they're just so great. They're not even worth comparing. And Asaph's response to all of this is to direct his longing back to God. Let's pick it up from verse 25. He asks, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What amazing words. Asaph is completely fixated and dependent on God. He says there is nothing he desires, desires, sorry, desires besides God, and he has an eternal view. His earthly body might fail him, and surely it will, but he knows that his strength comes from God, and he'll be with God forever. And the psalm now concludes in kind of a complete reversal of where it started. Do you remember back in verse 2 where Asaph said, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped, I'd nearly lost my foothold? Well, compare that now to how it ends in verse 29. He says, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. He's a changed man. His crisis of faith is over. His security is now completely in God. He's lost his envy for those around him. And I think this is where it gets a bit personal for you and me because I don't think we can read this psalm without asking ourselves, What is it that we truly envy? 
Do we envy the lifestyle of those around us, those that want little to do with God and seek to push God out of the picture? Is chasing after the good life, health, wealth and prosperity and popularity and making our lives as comfortable as possible, is, is that what shapes us? Or like Asaph, do we look at life through God's eternal perspective? Do we desire God more than anything else on earth? Do we realize that it's good to be near God and take refuge in Him? Does our strength and security come from God and His promises? How do you tell? Well, maybe you could take a look at how you spend your time and see what that says. So, so here's a slightly trivial exercise. Imagine, imagine you found a spare hour one evening. A free hour, you say? That never happens. Well, imagine that it does. How are you going to use it? What's the first thing that comes to mind? If you're anything like me, the idea of flopping on the couch and catching up on an hour of Netflix or TV sounds ideal. But if I wanted to, how could I better spend that hour so that, reflects, so that it reflects a desire for God or looks at things from an eternal perspective? Well, maybe I could try and get to know God better, perhaps by, I don't know, preparing for this week's Bible study group I could take a look at the passage and have a go at the questions in advance. And I suppose that even might, that might even encourage others in my Bible study group as well, an added bonus. Or, or maybe I could spend the time praying for people I know that don't yet know God. I could pray that they get to know God, because that's eternal. But I guess this exercise could be extended to more than just an imaginary free hour. We could apply it to whatever consumes most of our time, like our, like our study or work or retirement, whatever it is. I mean, does what you do with your time reflect an eternal perspective? Does it show a desire for God? And what can you change so that it gets just a bit closer? In our society, here in Sydney, here in Balmain, it's completely countercultural to live in a way that looks at life from an eternal perspective and shows a desire for God more, more than anything in this world, without a doubt, it's going to look strange to live in a way that puts God first, that chooses to be near to God, that chooses to take refuge in God rather than chasing the good life. It's going to seem to be crazy to live in a way that says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And people are going to ask questions. So what do you tell them? Well, for me and for you, I hope we can be as bold as Asaph. I hope we can tell them of God's great deeds and say that's what shapes our lives. I hope we can tell them openly of God's incredible love for us, that he sent his one and only son to die for us so that we can live in eternal glory with him.